You're listening to Industry Iowa, presented by Cirrus, the Center for Industrial Research and Service. Here's your host, Stephen Wilson. All right, well, welcome to Industry Iowa, a podcast of Iowa State University and the Center for Industrial Research. And as uh, Gail mentioned uh, on the intro, my name is Steve Wilson, and uh, with us uh, in studio, I like to say, uh, virtually in studio is Jake Wood. Jake is the executive chairman of Team Rubicon and founder and CEO of uh, Groundswell. Uh, also served in the military in, in the uh, in the Marines, and we'll talk a little bit about that experience as well. But one of the reasons that Jake is on the program today is that Jake is going to be speaking at the ILC conference, which is taking place in October, October 25th. Uh, he's going to be one of the keynote speakers. And uh, a lot of interesting uh, details about uh, his life. And I know he's going to speak uh, um, on several things that will resonate with uh, with the audience. But our hope today is to give you a little bit of a uh, of a taste. And well, Jake, I have your bio in front of me. It's it's hmm. uh, um, um, quite a mouthful. But uh, just what what would you say? Um, I guess. Uh, uh, as you, you welcome yourself, um, give us your your uh, your bio. What are the things that really stick out to you in your bio? Yeah, well, I, I think you mentioned you know one thing. I'm a I'm a proud uh, Marine Corps veteran, and certainly proud of my service uh, to this country for four years during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, probably the thing that's omitted from the bio is uh, I'm a native son of this great state of Iowa. Uh, that's I what I heard. In... You're a native. You're a fellow Iowegian. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got imported in the sixth grade um, from Illinois, but I grew up, uh, you know, junior high and high school in uh, the Quad Cities out over in uh, Bettendorf um, and, you know, love the state, love returning. And I'm excited to come back in October to join the conference. Um but you know, I think I think my my bio can really be summarized in two words: social entrepreneur. Since getting out of the Marine Corps, I've I've worked to build uh, companies or organizations that aim to have a positive impact on society, and I've been fortunate that uh, you know I've had some measure of success doing that, and uh, you know w- would have it no other way. I know one of the things that uh, you've been a part of um, is uh, Team Rubicon. Talk about mm-hmm. Team Rubicon and your experience and, and where that came out of. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, you know, the first social venture that I started was Team Rubicon and, and I started it by accident. Um, I got out of the Marine Corps in late 2009. Uh, always kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur, but 2009 was a tough year. The economy was in shambles. And I certainly, as a Marine infantryman and sniper, didn't have many marketable skills when it came to entrepreneurship, at least none that I I could readily uh, communicate or convey to someone. And as I was planning on going back to graduate school to get my MBA, uh, a disaster struck Haiti, a terrible earthquake, uh, you know, real tragic, one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes of the last century. And compelled to help, I, I helped organize a team of veterans and doctors to go down there and assist with some of the early recovery efforts. And so we got down there about four days after the earthquake and really just discovered that our military experience allowed us to really cut through the complexity and the ambiguity of that environment mm-hmm. quite efficiently. And so what what started as kind of a, a spur of the moment decision with no intention for it to be anything beyond the one or two weeks we would spend in Haiti ended up uh, snowballing into a global humanitarian organization that continues to thrive today. 
Uh, it's called Team Rubicon. It's got 150,000 volunteers. It operates complex disaster and humanitarian missions globally, um, but predominantly here in the United States, uh, in all 50 states and territories, ranging from hurricanes, floods, fires, tornadoes, uh, and everything in between, uh, including pandemics, um, but also continuing to work internationally. We have teams in Ukraine, Central America. Uh, we've operated throughout Asia, Africa, uh, and everywhere in between, and really with the goal of alleviating human suffering. So it was a, a tremendous uh, opportunity for me to um, you know, help to build something meaningful, to flex those entrepreneurial muscles, to uh, do something that kept me inspired over the course, you know, the better part of a decade and a half. And, uh, you know, I count myself lucky to remain chairman of the, of the board. Now, um, talk about it. You mentioned military and, uh, and volunteers. How had, I know that's, that's, um, a driving force behind your initiative as well as is, is, re-engaging with those that um, are, are no longer in the military coming back. How are your, your, your efforts going with that? I happened to watch a, an older video and I think it was maybe about uh, uh, 2011, maybe a 10, mm. I think. And, and you were talking about that and, and what's, uh, how have those efforts been? Yeah. So I think one of the, the, the keys to success of team Rubicon's mission over the years has been, you know, our, our our thesis was always that we could build the best disaster response organization in the world by recruiting, you know, men and women who'd been trained by the U.S. military to, you know, operate in the hardest circumstances imaginable uh, with missions that were can't fail missions. And, and the only thing that comes close to rivaling the the complexity and, and uncertainty of the battlefield is a disaster zone. So, you know, that was core to our thesis. What we learned was that this was also a really powerful mission, um, a really powerful opportunity to regain community and a sense of identity for those veterans themselves. And so I think that that has really, for us, created a uh, an inordinately uh, passionate uh, volunteer force. You know, these are people that have service in their blood. They want to make an impact in the community. Um, and again, I think we have the best damn volunteers out there and, you know, I'll put that marker down and ask anybody to challenge it. <laughs> right. Uh, now, one of the things uh, you, you talk a lot about your, your military, uh, experience and, and, uh, and I understand the subject that you're going to be talking about, uh, at the conference is conquering through chaos. And, uh, and there's a, uh, uh, a process, a methodology. I know that, uh, was, uh, was founded within the the military and that's that's VUCA and I'm I'm very familiar with it. But for those that aren't, uh, describe that. What is VUCA? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I guess as just kind of an overview, uh, you know, the last two decades of my life, I've just been in the most chaotic uh, circumstances imaginable. Whether it was playing college football in super loud stadiums with you know high stakes to two different war zones to hundreds of disaster zones, um, chaos is kind of been a, a strange bedfellow of mine. Um, so, you know, VUCA is a framework that the military created, uh, you know, about 40 years ago at the U.S. Army War College. And it was a framework for helping to understand chaos. I think most people, they hear words, you know, the words that make up the acronym VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. They think of them all as uh, analogous to one another. And in some ways, you know, they are. They are, they're different descriptors of chaotic situations. But 
one of the things that the military tried to really discern was that each of those are distinct forms of chaos. And they're marked by uh, you know, different traits and characteristics. And if you have a deep understanding of the type of chaos that you're facing, whether it's a volatile situation versus an uncertain situation versus complex or ambiguous, and again, they're in some ways very similar, but they are also very distinct. If you understand which you're facing and how they evolve from one to the other, then you're going to be better positioned to implement the right strategies and tactics to conquer it. And I think you know, what I've seen over the years is that, you know, the best organizations operate through some foundational principles that prepare them for those moments of chaos. And of course, there are certain, you know, tactics that leaders can employ to ensure that in those moments, because they are inevitable, uh, that they're best positioning their teams to succeed. So when we talk about, again, yeah, you're saying that while there's similarity amongst those four, you can't approach each one uh, the same way, right? So um, how does that then, um, how does one prepare for, how does one best prepare for dealing with these chaoses and conquering through, uh, not necessarily managing the, con the, the, the chaos, uh, but leading through the chaos? How does, how does an organization uh, recognize, boy, where are we at? Which one of these? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the first thing is if you're if you're only just thinking about that when the chaos strikes and you've already lost, right? So I think the best leaders, the best organizations are uh, inherently um, uh, uh, just kind of sitting around paranoid that this is going to happen. So I think paranoia about uh, impending chaos is a is a healthy thing for organizations to have. And, you know, I think similarly, the best organizations don't just survive those moments, they thrive in them, they realize them for what they are. It's an opportunity for your organization to leapfrog the competition or the status quo. And so just kind of having that frame of mind, I think is really important early, but, you know, building the muscle tissue uh, within organizations uh, again, has to start in advance of that moment. And I, I, I use that same VUCA framework to talk through how organizations need to approach that. It starts with vision. You know, anybody who's been a leader understands that leadership starts with setting a vision. Um, I think there are a lot of really distinct lessons for how you can effectively do that. It's not just crafting good words on a whiteboard and, and you know, translating them uh, into an email and transmitting them over the web. It's It's really how do you not just create a compelling vision, but then put in place the right uh, discipline that aligns every single decision, action, and resource uh, that an organization has to that vision. That's that's the hard part. That's where visions fall apart for most leaders. But you know, it really starts there. Uh, from there, you talk about uniformity. You know, how are you establishing the right systems and process within your organization so that uh, everyone knows the right way? to do certain tasks. You know, you don't want to be uh, in the midst of a chaotic moment trying to figure out how to send, you know, you know, a fax, right? That's a really bad example because nobody has fax machines anymore. But, you know, if, yeah. if you're wasting critical brain power trying to figure out something that should just be rote, you know, rote memory, rote muscle memory, um, then, then you're wrong. I, I use countless examples from the military. You know, one of the things that I, I share is that you know, when my sniper team would go out on missions, every piece of gear that we had was in a very specific place on our bodies. 
And the reason was that, that we didn't allow people to customize those things, that we made them uniform, was that in the middle of the night, if I had to change the batteries on my night vision goggles, I wanted to be able to walk up to the Marine in front of me, know exactly which pouch in his backpack those extra batteries were, and be able to reach into them in the dead of night without using any light source whatsoever, and know that the moment that I reach in that pouch, I'm going to have my, you know, my fingers wrapped around a couple of AA batteries. We didn't use AA's, but I can't remember what the actual battery type was that we used. Now, a lot of people, they, they kind of lament some of those things and they say, oh, that sounds like a lot of bureaucracy. Well, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, bureaucracy has a certain purpose, right? Creating system and process is not necessarily bureaucracy in its bad form. It liberates you to, to think freely, to be able to um, innovate on the fly by, you know, exercising your brain power on those problems, those challenges that are truly novel being mm -hmm. presented by that chaotic moment. Um, from there, you know, those are the V and the U. Culture is that C. It's, you know, I define culture and always have as that thing that guides decisions in the absence of orders. You know, these chaotic moments require people to, to be empowered, to be able to make those decisions and innovate on the fly. How do you trust teams uh, at scale in those moments of ambiguity or complexity to consistently demonstrate the right behavior or, or make the right decision in the absence of orders? Meaning when you can't tell them all of the right decisions to make. And frankly, you probably don't even know the right decisions yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's that culture that that really guides that. And I, I walk through a, you know, a whole kind of process for how we thought about culture as we built Team Rubicon. And that was really based on our experience in the military. You know, that the military is, I think, uh, often thought of as, as having so much strength in its culture. Not all of it's good, um, but but a lot of it is. You know, there's a lot that I think that we should deconstruct from the military's culture, but there's a lot of things that are. Uh, I think people should try to emulate. Um, and, and I walk through ways that people can do that. And then, uh, you know, really lastly, uh, it's that alignment. You know, uh, these are these are chaotic moments. How do you ensure that all those members of the team are aligned to that vision, aligned to that culture, ultimately aligned to the task at hand so that everyone is working harmoniously, putting in that extra effort to ensure that, uh, you know, the, the mission gets accomplished. Those are really the foundations, the strengths of any strong organization in good times and bad. But if you don't have those things in bad times, your organization's going to crumble. You can, you can hide some of those deficiencies in good yes. times. Right. You, can, you can hide it with excess capital. You can hide it with a couple of star performers, mm -hmm. a weak competitive landscape. But the moment that that SHIT hits the fan, like, you will be exposed. Mm -hmm. So again, focusing on those things in the good times ensures that you can thrive in the bad times. Well, I think that's one of the things that we've we've seen with with supply chain issues and COVID, and that I know a lot of organizations that uh, weren't necessarily strong in culture. Uh, all of a sudden, especially here in the state of Iowa, we have a, a workforce that hasn't really grown. I mean, the population really hasn't grown in in fifty years, and and uh, uh, the odds of it all of a sudden uh, beginning to uh, to increase uh, by any uh, uh, large portion are, are, uh, are pretty slim. Um, and so when workforce was a challenge, and as workforce is a challenge, those organizations where culture was not as strong, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, that's beginning to expose some things because you don't right. have 
individuals that are willing to to stay there as long uh, and and deal with a culture that might not be uh, as uh, uh, as good or strong uh, to uh, to work in. And so, yeah, it it uncovers oftentimes yeah that chaos and those things uncover the opportunities uh, that that exist. Would you say that you know? These things are coming from from the outside that you've been referring to these disasters, these wars. Is there any benefit uh, within an organization to to creating some of this um, this environment, this this uh, VUCA environment where there is some uh, vi uh, vulnerability or uncertainty? Is there value to an organization creating that? And then as a result of that, being able to to grow, certainly in, in smaller in smaller bites. Well, I think there's I mean, there's maybe a couple of different ways to answer that question. Um, you know, certainly within the military and disaster communities, you're, you're running through exercises where you're trying to simulate these environments, tabletop exercises where, you know, you, you get people around a table and you say, all right, hey, an F5 tornado just ripped through, you know, XYZ town. And you have people that that kind of manage and, and facilitate those exercises. And, and they're they're wonderful tools for helping people to think through those moments. Um, but then there's, you know, kind of the self-inflicted wounds, right? You might have a, a key executive departure or, you know, a star performer at, a, you know, mid-level you know, I've always challenged teams to to look at those types of departures, you know, that that turnover that you'd really love to to not have happen as opportunities to to radically rethink what your org looks like. You know, I think oftentimes, despite anytime any anyone who's done any human capital planning knows that you think about your workforce and you you say, okay, just look at you know boxes on the sheet and don't think about the names in them so that you're more inclined to make objective decisions about your how you are structuring your organization without the personalities or livelihoods of the people involved. But the reality is that's impossible to do. Mm -hmm. But those moments of turnover um, provide these opportunities for you to, to, to kind of capitalize on that because they're forcing functions for you to rethink, okay, is that actually the role that we continue to need? Is this an opportunity for us to restructure to take advantage of this moment when it would otherwise be too painful with the people on the board? And, you know, that's just one example, I think, of, you know, some some natural chaos. It, it, maybe people don't think about that as, as a form of chaos, but you know, having a couple of key people leave can, uh, you know, put a department in shambles. That's an opportunity, again, to radically rethink how you're task organizing your people around the objectives of the organization. So I, I do always challenge people to think about those moments in that way. Uh, would you say that organizations are differentiated oftentimes by their ability to respond to chaos? I, I, I mean, I think so. I think um, some of the largest, most successful organizations out there, and you, you can imagine how they, they leapfrogged in that chaos. And, and chaos, again, it can present itself in, in, a, in a multiple ways. You can think about the deregulation of a market as chaos, you know, suddenly everything is like the wild west. It's like the, you know, the Oklahoma Sooners out there, Hey, run your wagon as fast as you can and, and stake some ground. I mean, that's, that's a chaotic moment, but it is one where if you can rise to the top, you can just capture so much opportunity. So again, it's, it's how you, how you think about those moments. So if you, if you're in a highly regulated industry and there's a, you know, a, a change in administration through, you know, an election that happens every four years and suddenly 
there's massive deregulation that's happening. Executives are going to approach that one of two ways. They're going to be fearful of what that means for them because that regulation used to be a moat for them. It was a competitive moat that other competitors could not cross. Yeah. Or they could see it as that opportunity where, hey, the, the, the walls are down. It's time for us to, to expand outwardly. You know, you think about companies like Southwest Airlines um, that rose to prominence prominence in an era of deregulation for the airline industry. I think it's a great example of, of an organization that saw those moments to move from being just a small regional carrier into probably the most successful domestic airline in the U.S. Uh, consistently year over year. Um, they certainly saw that chaos for what it was. Hey, this is our opportunity to shine. So one of the... the uh... Obviously, the, the group that you're going to be speaking to uh, and, and most likely perhaps listening um, to the podcast uh, with the Iowa Link Consortium are individuals that are involved in continuous improvement all the way from uh, frontline to, um, to executives. Um, what's, what's your message to them? What's your message to them? And again, I, I don't want to uh, uh, give away uh, everything from, uh, from coming up in October, but what are some of the things that that, that you're going to touch on um, with them as leaders? Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that I'll try to drive home is that leading through chaos is not a CEO's job. It's a part of their job, right? But they're not the sole person within an organization that's responsible for this. That chaos uh, can be, uh, you know, it, it can be happening at any, it doesn't necessarily have to be hitting the whole enterprise. It can. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it, again, it's not just exclusively that CEO's job to, to handle or manage or lead through it. That is permeating all the way down through the organization. You need leadership at all levels throughout an organization in order to execute that, which means that everybody has to have some level of competence in leading through chaos. But regardless, there is going to be chaotic moments. You know, I often think about moments as these tremendous opportunities for people to drive influence and as a result, result as a result, results uh, in those those small moments, those small moments of chaos that ha that happen up and down uh, the you know the departments, the teams, all the way down to the front lines of a company. You know, think about a frontline manager who suddenly has uh, a you know a frontline worker that doesn't show up unexpectedly. That's a moment of chaos. How do you respond in that moment? Because all of those things have a ripple effect throughout an organization. The organization that puts out those little fires and never allows them to become raging wildfires across the enterprise, mm -hmm. those are the organizations that by reducing that friction in every, uh, every aspect of the, of the company are the ones that really thrive. Uh, you're going to be uh, talking, I would assume, um, some of the things that, uh, that uh, you have in, uh, uh, in your book. Uh, which is uh, once a warrior. Are you going to be bringing copies? You know uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't think I'm going to be bringing copies. I don't know if there are going to be copies there. I'm traveling. I ain't care. I'm not you, lugging. You, you won't be pack, You won't be packing copies there. Well, hopefully there'll be there'll be copies there. Um, but just real quickly, uh, how can folks find out a little bit more about you? Yeah. So um, I'm an open book because I wrote a book, uh, a memoir of of kind of my. Uh, 20s and 30s, uh, going to war, coming home, and building Team Rubicon, called Once a Warrior, like you said. Uh, it's available anywhere a book is sold. Um, you know, I'm really proud of the book. I thought it, it, uh, it. I think what I aim to do is reveal a different side of of 
you know, what a, a combat veteran's experience was like and, and not just have it about, you know, the chest thumping adventure of combat overseas, but really about the, the more nuanced journey of going to war and coming home. Um, you know, but folks can check out Team Rubicon at, you know, on the web. They're really easy to find, teamrubiconusa.org and in my new venture, Groundswell, groundswell.io. Um, you know, learn about a couple of social impact ventures out there trying to make the world a better place. And uh, also, uh, it's just jakewood.co, correct? Yeah, jakewood.co. That's right, I guess. Yeah, that one too. <laughs> folks, folks can go out there and uh, lots of things on uh, uh, um, YouTube as uh, as well. Jake, uh, thanks so much for your time. As we're closing out here, um, any last uh, last minute thoughts, things that you want to want to get out to us? I would just say, uh, you know, I, I uh, love the great state of Iowa. I am very excited to have an excuse to come home and see my family, uh, as well as share the message that I have with uh, the Lean Consortium. So really looking forward to it. And I hope to see everybody on October 25th. Well, it's always sunny in Cedar Rapids in Iowa. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so. <laughs> there you go. It's going to be a great time of year for you. Jake, thanks so much again for being on the Industry Iowa podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.